Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Last week, the Chinese government under President Xi Jinping took steps to finally move away from its zero COVID policy following two weeks of protests in multiple cities. The unrest and anti-government sentiment was perhaps the most pronounced since the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown. And while these events gave Western observers an opportunity to grapple with the complexity of Chinese politics, generational and regional differences in the views of the population, and ultimately how the authoritarian government responds to public pressure, it also gave us a chance to see how the Chinese censorship and surveillance apparatus operates. This week's Tech Policy Press podcast comes in two parts. In both, we'll hear from reporters covering the intersection of China and technology. This is the first part, and it features a conversation with Lisa Lin, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. She covers Asia technology news for the journal from Singapore. Before that, she was the paper's China correspondent based in Shanghai. She was part of a team of the journal named as Pulitzer finalists for the international reporting category in 2021 for coverage of Xi Jinping. And with other journal reporters, she won the Gerald Loeb Award for international reporting in 2018 for a series of stories on China's surveillance state. She's co-author of a book on that subject titled Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, written with Josh Chen. Here's Lisa. My name is Lisa Lin. I work for the Wall Street Journal. I'm part of its Global China Bureau, and I'm based in Singapore right now. Because of a lot of uh, restrictions in China, a lot of journalists have been kicked out, including those of the Wall Street Journal. So the journal essentially covers China, uh, mainly from outside of China at this point. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience covering China? How long have you been observing the country, and how long were you there? Sure. I first got to China in 2010, and that really was the start of China's internet censorship phase. I remember going there and trying to turn on Facebook, and Facebook was blocked. This was mid-2010 when the World Cup was still happening, and I was trying to get World Cup updates on Google and Facebook, and I just realized I couldn't get on either. And gradually, as the years progressed, you just saw more and more social media companies get blocked. When the Arab Spring happened, Twitter was blocked. Any popular Western social media outlet in China gradually also lost access. And as China's own internet companies kind of rose to fill the void, there was just very, very little push on the part of the Chinese government to even allow more Western companies in. And I think what you've been seeing in more recent years, particularly since Chinese President Xi Jinping took power, is a bit more of an information grab or information control uh, happening on that front. So you're also seeing websites such as Wikipedia, you know, really run-of-the-mill websites that you'd never expect to be blocked in China, CNN.com, Wall Street Journal, um, Reuters, Spotify, even a music app like Spotify, things like that would be blocked from the Chinese ecosystem. So at this point, there's a, a kind of complete veil to some extent between the West and, and the sort of Chinese internet. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about how that plays out in the context of uh, these domestic protests that we're seeing unfold. Can you tell us a little bit about where that situation is at the moment? 
to put it in perspective, just to show the changes that have happened over the last 10 years. So, when I was there in 2010, you still had access to all these news media websites that I told you about. Gradually, you know, towards 2017, 2018, you found news media websites blocked. You found things such as Wikipedia get blocked. But it wasn't just the blocking of websites、uh, that was an issue in China. In China, when I got there in 2010 and all the way to like 2015, there was still some semblance of free speech on the web. There was still Pockets in which the Chinese internet user could go to gripe about certain things.、Uh, for example, there was a massive like, high speed rail crash in 2012, 2013, and people were very angry about it because the high speed rail crash occurred mainly because the government had tried to start, jumpstart this you know, vanity high speed rail project earlier than it should. Not all the tests had been run properly, and they had begun running this high speed rail. So, when the high speed rail crash happened, lots of people took to social media and particularly to Weibo, which is China's version of Twitter, to express their grievances and to basically call out government officials that were involved. Fast forward to today, just after what's happened in China with the protests in multiple cities that we saw happening, all sparked by the Chinese government's desire to stick to a strategy of controlling COVID with very fierce city lockdowns and severe movement restrictions. Fast forward to today, you're seeing very little space for people to express their displeasure. And that's not because of the, you know, the blocking of the internet, that's because of censorship. So, in addition to China's Great Firewall, you also have a team of what we would call internet censors in China that are intensely scrubbing、uh, social media and internet websites and online forums of anything that might run counter to what the Chinese government wants to portray to its citizens. So, I think that's really kind of where we stand today with internet censorship, online network disruptions. And how are you sort of seeing that play out in the context of these current protests? So, whenever there's the possibility of mass unrest occurring in China, what you see is the Chinese government tends to turn to a very tried and tested playbook. And this playbook would be the Internet Watchdog sending out a memo to Chinese companies telling them to clean up their platforms, to scrub out. Any material that might add fuel to the fire, or any video of you know, a lone protester that might go viral and just spark more unrest. So that's one of the areas, one of, one of the things they do. The second thing they tend to do is they try and clamp down on the ability of Chinese citizens to jump the internet firewall. So, to jump the Chinese internet firewall and to get on external websites such as Twitter or Facebook and start posting videos there instead. Because in China, they, these Chinese internet users know that the instant they post these videos, the videos would be taken down, either through a combination of、um, machine and human censorship or just human censorship. So, what people have been trying to do is to jump the firewall and post the videos online on Twitter where it can get the attention of a mass audience, hopefully the foreign media, and then more attention to the cause.、Um, this is like the typical cat and mouse game that we're seeing in China. This time around, What's really unique、um, with this round of protests is people have come to the realization how little they can say on the Chinese internet sphere. So there's been a big push to try and get videos out on Twitter 
a lot more than you would have seen in the past. So if you looked on Twitter, there's a guy whose handle is Teacher Lee, Lee Lao Shi. So Teacher Lee is just a translation of his handle. And he has probably at this point, 800,000 followers. He's jumped, you know, he's doubled that following in probably the last two weeks or so. But people have been actively, Chinese internet users have been jumping the firewall and feeding him videos by sending him um, these videos through the Twitter direct messaging platform. So this is one way, like the world knows that just beyond that fire that happened in the northwestern part of China and the protests that happened in that city, there have been multiple protests around China. So this has been one thing that's been seriously very striking to me this time, that people realize how little breathing room there is for any free speech on the Chinese internet. So in the context of what we're seeing here, I mean, there's clearly a lot of creativity. People are posting photos of themselves with blank pieces of paper, other kinds of creativity to sort of try to breach the censorship regime, get a message out, even if it's you know, not an exact message. It does seem to be a kind of extraordinary, I don't have any other word for it than creativity, um, really, to sort of get around the censors. Um, are there other examples of that you can point to? Sure. Yeah, there are a ton of it. Um, Chinese internet users have just become super creative in their effort to just jump the firewall or to avoid getting their message censored. So one of the ways they do it is when you send photos over, there's a chat application in China that's an app called WeChat. WeChat is this do-it-all kind of app that functions not just as like an Instagram feed, it's also your WhatsApp combined into it. It's also a Venmo because it allows you to you know, make mobile payments. It's also Amazon because you can shop on that app. So it, it is one of that one of those quintessential and ubiquitous kind of Chinese apps that everyone has in their phone. The problem with WeChat is that WeChat also has a really, really high level of censorship and they're really good automated censorship. So that means that, for example, if I posted a picture of a scene of a protest, that picture would be immediately taken down. On my app, it would look like it reached the person that I tried to send it to, but in actual fact, it never did. And I've had that happen to me multiple times, not just with pictures, but even PDF files, for example, like a PDF file of a piece on Western media about Chinese President Xi Jinping that might have had some unfavor unfavorable mentions that would have been that wouldn't reach my other counterparty at all. You know, it would look like it was sent, but no file was actually sent. So that's the extent that WeChat can filter out what's being sent on its system. So I've definitely seen a lot of creative ways to get around WeChat censorship. And this year I've been seeing the most creative ones. So sometimes people would post pictures upside down. So it kind of confuses the AI that's looking for a scene of like a particular bridge where protests happened. Or sometimes they would overlay a video with a song or different audios. So it, the AI is watching out and listening for like noises of a protest, right? Noises of people chanting, you know, please go away, President Xi. The AI is watching out for such little detail and taking down these files when they discover them. I've seen photos that are Photoshopped, but not in the way you think they're Photoshopped. They're Photoshopped with like red lines scribbled around it. It just messes up the ability of an automated filtering system to take down these files. 
this cat and mouse game has gotten very creative as the censorship has gotten much tighter. And the other ways that censorship is, you know, how, how people get around censorship is just to use different terms. So, for example, if people wanted to talk about President Xi, they never use his name anymore. You know, they call him Winnie the Pooh, um, President of Forever. There are these Chinese hononyms as well that sound like his name, but it's not actually the, the real characters. So, again, the AI doesn't figure out that they're talking about this person. So the message slips through. So there are all these, all these ways and means that Chinese Internet users have gotten very creative. So they're evading the classifiers, evading the, the systems on some level. Uh, but you've written about, of course, another tactic that the Chinese government then has, uh, which is to quite literally interfere in WeChat functioning itself. And then eventually, I suppose, internet blackouts. But let's talk a little bit about WeChat, because you wrote recently in the middle of October about uh, how Chinese censors were crippling access to WeChat. So we probably should preface this by saying that a lot of the Chinese internet companies have grown to the size they are today, partly because of government assistance. So in a way, WeChat has gotten to where it is and how large it is because of Chinese government help, be it indirectly through the Chinese government blocking out Facebook and WhatsApp, or be it directly through the issuance of uh, licenses to operate in the space. So Chinese companies, in a way, are very beholden to the Chinese government and to the party for their success. And that includes companies such as Alibaba and WeChat. So what happened with WeChat recently was in October, and this was just ahead of a very important Chinese government meeting in which the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, he's been in power for two terms, and he's looking for a third term in power. And that's relatively unprecedented for leaders of his era. In the run-up to that meeting, there, there was a protester who was very upset with the state of affairs in China, who basically strung up banners across a very popular highway in Beijing, where many cars would go by. And in those banners, he basically called for Xi Jinping to be taken down for the end of the zero COVID policy, where people would be free to move around again and not locked down by movement restrictions. And that when viral on WeChat immediately, as you can imagine any protest anywhere would on social media. And similarly in China, except the only difference in China is that the government could actually give Tencent, who operates WeChat, a ring and tell them to clean up social media. So what Tencent did was they ended up looking in a lot of the group chats to see who had posted the pictures of what had happened. And they immediately shut down the accounts of people who were posting pictures or spreading, you know, just spreading videos of the incident. The people that I spoke to didn't even have to say a thing. And very often they didn't. You know, the photo just, one photo just speaks a thousand words in that sense. Very often they just sent a photo in a group chat. And within a day, they got a message saying they had flouted internet rules in China. And because of that, their account was shut down permanently. And in China, because WeChat is such a do-it-all app, you know, you have your health code on WeChat, you make mobile payments on WeChat, you use that for transportation to take the subway even. You know, it's a bit like uh, Apple Pay or Samsung Pay on your phone. Because WeChat is so do-it-all, it was kind of like cyber death for these people when you didn't have a WeChat app. Um, and it wasn't that easy to register a new account either because in, in China, when you register with an app like WeChat or any Chinese app, you have to peg it to a mobile phone number. 
So that means in order to get a new WeChat account, you needed to get a new mobile phone number, which is registered to your official ID. So every so the Chinese government can pinpoint who's using this WeChat app because it's registered to a phone number and that's registered to your ID. So it was just a pain for a lot of people to be going through that. And it was also, again, unprecedented because in the past, even when you posted material that was considered offensive to the Chinese government or the party, your account would be suspended for a few days, but never permanently shut down. What will happen to those individuals ultimately? Will they remain in that sort of cyber death uh, permanently? Or do you suppose there's a, a path back? So eventually what happens is these people will go get a new mobile phone number. So under one you know, official government ID, you can have a few phone numbers registered to that ID. So you would get a new phone number um, issued to your government ID, and then you use that new phone number to, to download WeChat again. The, the only thing, it's, it's quite painful because WeChat doesn't work the way WhatsApp or you know, iMessenger works by tapping your contacts. With WeChat, you scan another person's QR code and you very often add them that way. So, for example, some of the closest friends I had in Shanghai, I often didn't really need to know their mobile number because we communicated on WeChat. All I needed was your WeChat ID. So a lot of it was you're picking up the pieces, you're finding your social circle again. And because WeChat is also so entrenched in work, very often it's used as, you know, email is not used as often in China as WeChat is. People send files and they communicate through WeChat much more quickly than email. So that can often mean... Quite embarrassingly, you have to go back to your work contacts and, and still, you know, ask them to add them again and explain to them why you were kicked off in the first place. So there's a high cost to any kind of expression that goes well beyond, of course, just censorship, but also potentially being cut off from commerce, from your, from your job, from your friends. Can you talk a little bit about the connection between the censorship apparatus and the surveillance apparatus? Have you seen any interesting developments with regard to that connection in these most recent protests? It's interesting you bring it up because the censorship is a part of a much broader surveillance system that the Chinese government has put in to monitor its citizens. And I think you've definitely been seeing in the last decade or so a huge increase on the number of points in which the Chinese government has attempted to use digital technologies to surveil its citizens. And it's not just tracking what they do on mobile phones. It's also, you know, the facial recognition cameras, the hundreds of millions of facial recognition cameras that you see on the streets of Shanghai, Beijing, Urumuchi, um, where a lot of ethnic minorities live. It's this big spike in camera installments, this increasing access to internet company data. So for that, like in 2017, beginning 2016, 2017, the Chinese government started putting in new laws as well that mandated that, you know, for national security reasons, that they could go to any internet company or any company for that matter and obtain data in the name of national security. And there was no way to push back. This is one of the big fears that's driving this pushback against TikTok in the US right now. The fact that the Chinese government could go to any of its Chinese companies and ask for data, and that TikTok is technically owned by a Beijing-based uh, internet company. Censorship is just one part of a broader surveillance system that the Chinese government has put in place across the years. And it's, it's increasingly clear to me that at the start, there was this huge belief on how technology was a great leveler and 
you know, it would empower people. But in the case of you know authoritarian leaning governments such as China, you're definitely seeing the opposite happen. Technologies are not neutral, and in fact, have been used to repress populations even more than in the non-digital era. So, between these big companies, WeChat, Sinaweibo, Baidu, none of them have seemed to have had a particularly pleasant relationship with the government. On one level, they've all been、uh, fined. They've all,、uh, you know, had their own run-ins. Of course, there have been、uh, some extraordinary、uh, situations with some of the Chinese tech executives. Do we know anything about? Whether they push back or the extent to which there's any separation at all now from the Chinese state. Yeah, so I I definitely think that the Chinese companies try to push back.、Um, data is a very valuable commodity, and it doesn't make sense to share data so freely with the Chinese government because you're essentially losing something that could be a huge selling point of your company. And we've definitely seen in the past how Alibaba and Tencent have pushed back. On data sharing with the Chinese government, but they've not pushed back on data sharing with state security agencies like the police, for example. What they pushed back in the past was when China was trying to create a national financial credit score, and they wanted some data from Alibaba, which runs、uh, China's largest e-commerce platform, and they wanted some data from Tencent, which has you know fifty percent market share in the mobile payment space in China. Both Tencent and Alibaba were very hesitant to give up that data. The idea was that they would share the data with the Chinese central bank, and the Chinese central bank would use that data to assign a credit score to everyone else. But in that case, it you know the effort went on for at least a year, and there was so much pushback that ultimately it never got off the ground. There are definitely cases where you see the companies have a very tense relationship with the government. And I think everything was brought to a head、uh, last year during the tech crackdown when、um, the Chinese internet companies were essentially slapped with fines on the basis of anti-monopolistic behavior. How many Chinese users are are using VPNs to to jump the firewall? There is actually no official number, and there's no official number because in China it is technically illegal for individuals、um, to jump the Chinese firewall. For some contexts, VPNs in China are legal, but only legal in certain contexts. So, a VPN is legal if, in the eyes of the Chinese government, if you use Chinese government-approved VPNs, and these are often run and offered by the state telecom companies. The trick to using a Chinese-approved VPN is that, in order to get that approval, you're essentially giving the Chinese government like backdoor access to your data. And not everyone can get it. Only corporations, unless you were a company, individuals like you and I trying to purchase a VPN for our own usage that wasn't legal at all. And we've seen cases、uh, in the last couple of years where Chinese who have been trying to either access information through a VPN or trying to create VPNs to sell to the public, they've been like taken away and jailed or fined. So it it is、um, it because it is illegal. There is really no、uh, there's no number or tabulation on how many Chinese use VPNs. 
However, that said, it is quite obvious that a lot of the younger people in China have been trying to jump the firewall. Sometimes they're jumping the firewall not because they want to find out, you know, or read like foreign news outlets. Some of them just want to use TikTok, or you know, some of them just want to see what's going on on Instagram because these are apps that are not available in China. When people jump the firewall, it's for all sorts of reasons. It's not always to protest. I've definitely talked to you know Chinese、uh, friends here in New York who have had to kind of live in both environments, you know, and to kind of maintain a digital presence in the sort of Chinese internet, but also outside of it. It sounds complicated because you think of it as a splinter net, right?、Mm. And it runs against the idea that Americans have about the internet, about how the internet has always got to be free. When you see it from China's eyes, they have a very different way of viewing the internet. China sees the internet as something that the state has to control. Data and cyber sovereignty is very big in China. It's just a different way of viewing it, and I would say it is troublesome to get set up. But once you're in that system, it's so easy. So in the past, when I was living in China and the internet was It was untenable to use anything from the Western internet in China. Then I would just have Western apps on one portion of my phone and Chinese apps on the other portion of my phone. The Chinese internet ecosystem has has become so mature and well well developed that you didn't need an Uber in China. You had Didi. You never needed Amazon.com because you had Alibaba. Any Western app that you could think of, there was a Chinese equivalent. You know the Chinese internet companies were that nimble, and very often you had Chinese apps that there was were no Western equivalents. For example, WeChat. When I left China, I remember missing WeChat because WeChat was that one stop for everything. It was my wallet, it was my transport card, it was my WhatsApp.、Uh, you, you know, I could buy train tickets on WeChat, and there were so many things you could do on WeChat that weren't available on you know apps outside of China. So it was tricky at the start because you had to download several new apps and you had to know which apps to download. But once you were all set up, you know, it was just a matter of switching from one ecosystem to the other. It's like living in an alternate universe once you cross out of China. So I'm speaking to you on Thursday, December the sixth, and of course, anything could happen、uh, between now and the weekend when I'll get this podcast out. But what is the kind of situation at the moment with the protests? So I think what you've been seeing with the protests is how effective a government internet shutdown or network disruption can be. I wouldn't give all the credit to you know digital technology. There has been the use of a ton of human、um, surveillance and human policemen to try and squash the protests. Policemen who are patrolling sites that were popular with protesters over the weekend,、um, two weekends ago. So I wouldn't credit everything to the use of digital surveillance and censorship, but that's been a large part of it. I mean, the inability to send a message out and organize on social media the way you would have done, for example, during the Arab Spring—that's not there anymore. People who are trying to organize a protest have to speak in coded language, and when you speak in coded language, only a fraction of The people that you really want to reach can understand what you're saying. So I think really what we're seeing now is how effective the Chinese government has been in squashing mass unrest, and that's really that's scary to me because going forward, I can only envision even more draconian measures taken. Perhaps as a final question, I'll 
ask you to try to characterize for maybe an American citizen, what would it be like to have this kind of power over social media and over digital communication in the hands of the state? Yeah, so the difference between the state collection of data in China versus the U.S. is a the scale of the data that can be collected by the Chinese government and the the ability to do it. You know, the ease of being able to do it. So in the U.S., you have data that's kind of very fragmented, right? So you have corporations such as your internet companies like Facebook and Google who have some of your consumer data and your personal information, and then you have Your photo, you know, your biometrics, and your data with the DMV because you have a driving license there, and then the FBI might have some surveillance camera footage, or you know, surveillance cameras in the U.S. are mostly privately owned, so the data is very fragmented. In China, the Chinese government has access to the street cameras that are run by the police on the street, so all that facial recognition. Image recognition, you know, the reams of video that's soaked up by the cameras is taken by them. Every citizen in China also has a biometric ID, so it's the equivalent of your DMV driver's license, but with a lot more information about you, where you stay, where you were born, who your relatives are, what's your picture like, and that aids in facial recognition. And let's not forget that the Chinese government has access, easy access, as I mentioned earlier, to that those set of laws to what the Chinese internet companies have. And that means if they have access to Alibaba and WeChat stuff, they have access to your chat records. They have access to what you buy on the internet.、Um, they have access to because often WeChat is used as your transport card, as I said. They have access to where you're traveling and very real time access as well. So that's the difference between China and the U.S. Right? That China has so much control over such a wide variety of data that in the U.S. would have been very difficult to pull together.、Um, and I think the other big difference between the U.S. and China is the ability to get that data as well. Facebook,、uh, Google, Amazon—these companies are very reluctant to work with the U.S. government. And for an FBI. Agent to get information from these companies, they typically have to go and get a subpoena from a court. So a, there is an added layer of a check and balance before the FBI agent or the bureau actually goes to these companies and demands data. And even if they demand the data, it's not certain that they'll get that data because the companies can push back and they can take you know the bureau to court and explain why they don't want to give up that data. All this doesn't happen in China. Let's keep in mind that with the national security law and other intelligence laws, Chinese companies have to hand over this data to state security agencies, and they have to willingly do so. There's just no avenue for recourse there. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me, Justin. That's it for this episode. I、hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy dot press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest, thanks to my co-founder Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.